0: It's 2050. Give or take. And it's time to start your day. Before your feet leave the bed and touch the floor, you crack your fingers awake and reach for the pair of glasses beside you. Oh no, your your eyes are great. In this fictional future, you have 2020 vision. These glasses aren't for seeing better. Well, I take that back. They're for seeing what you can't see better. That's because these are augmented reality glasses. As you throw these on and head into the bathroom for You know, morning things. You look at the blank wall beside the shower. The wall lights up with the day's headlines, a copy of your calendar, and a readout on how your previous night's sleep went. Eight hours, look at you. You finish up and head downstairs. You're out of coffee. Don't worry, coffee still exists in this future. That's a whole other story. But you've heard the new coffee shop nearby is supposed to be pretty great, so you head over there. As you drive, giant blue arrows hang in the sky overhead, guiding you to your pre-reserved parking spot. As you park, you notice the power and light worker staring at a lamppost. He's grasping at the air in front of him, turning invisible objects this way and that. The streetlight's been busted for a week now, so he's modeling out the internal wiring components to see what exactly could be wrong. You pick up your coffee, head home, and sit at your desk. It's empty not a screen, laptop, or pen and paper to be found. At this point, you might as well be Tom Cruise in Minority Report because with a simple move of your hand, four virtual screens fill the space in front of you. It's here you'll take the day's video calls, run analytics and reporting, and prepare for your next presentation. This is your life. You don't think twice about any of the moments that just transpired. Through these glasses, you witness a new world a world exactly like the one you live in, what you call reality. Only this world is overlaid with an unimaginable amount of technology. This world, as today's guest, co-founder of Wired Magazine, author and futurist Kevin Kelly calls it, is the mirror world. I'm Megan Keeney Anderson, and this is The Growth Show. Well, Kevin, thanks for coming to talk with us. I think your writing is amazing and your ideas are even better. So I'm happy to have you on the show.
1: I am delighted to be here.
0: You also have the coolest job title ever. Um, I so, do. <laughs> as a, a futurist, particularly around technology and its impact on the future, I'm wondering if you watch Black Mirror and if you do, I, yeah. if you enjoy those types of shows and those takes on the future.
1: I have seen six or seven episodes of uh, Black Mirror. Nice, uh, and I and I do enjoy them. They're um, they're fantastic little scenarios of the future. Of course, you know. I mean, the the one thing to be aware of Black Mirror is that they're all dystopian sure. um, views. That's that's in the title. The issue is that we need positive views of the future. Because it's very hard to make a future that is desirable without envisioning it first. Yeah. And so we need to do better in making uh, visions of the future of a future that we want to live in. And and I understand that's really hard to do, but it's very important to do it and to imagine it because unless we imagine it, it's very hard to build it.
0: I think that's such an interesting take. I mean... It is funny how many of our views of the future, even outside of television or shows, kind of start from a place of fear.
1: Absolutely. You know, if you stop a person in the street and ask them, what's the future of robots? It's Terminator. It's yeah. how in 2001. There's there's almost no um, visions of these things um, being things that we want in our lives in the future. Yet, at the same time, the one or few... Uh, optimistic visions of the future star trek which did not take place on earth unfortunately um, were, were huge sources of inspiration for people yeah. wanting to make the communicator and the tricorder and stuff and so you know where i'm trying to put my energy is in trying to help make clear make make visual make evident a world of you know ubiquitous ai and ubiquitous genetic engineering and yeah. ubiquitous uh, monitoring and make that into a world or describe that world where all those things are present and we want to live there. Um, <laughs> and so um, that's that's hard.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you co-founded Wired Magazine and you've written a number of books and each year you write one article still for the magazine. And most recently, I just read it, the article was Mirror World. Can you define Mirror World for us and tell us a little bit about what that, where that idea came from?
1: So in, in brief, Mirror World is, I would say, sort of the next big thing after your smartphone. So if you kind of imagine smartphones are just going to be you know, intermediate technology before the next thing. The next thing are smart glasses. Mm-hmm. And the smart glasses are clear glasses, glasses that you can see through. That show you the world, but there's an overlay of digital stuff, including an overlay of a digital version of the real world. So it's this, So it looks to you to, to be the same scale and in the same place as right. the real world, but there's this overlay. That overlay is the mirror world because it's mirroring the world. But there's an, an augmented aspect to it. So this is often called augmented reality and AR but sometimes it's called mixed reality MR and then people throw up their hands and say we'll call it XR whatever reality just give
0: it a name yeah
1: just give it a name XR so yeah. so meaning all these things and so that's that's the future and it's very likely that you'll first encounter this at work long before it becomes kind of a consumer thing that everybody wears so Mm -hmm. so people who don't have desk jobs are using it like in warehouses people who repair things are using it because it's very very handy to have an overlay of say the wiring diagram as you look at uh, an engine you can see these things and someone can be looking over your shoulder and pointing you to the right things and here's how you move your hands Uh, it's very very powerful as a way of training people to do things or even like training a chemist because they can walk through uh, a molecule and see it Um, and then it'll be used for virtual screens Um, so you can have as many screens as you want because you're seeing them through these smart glasses. It's a virtual world that is the real world that's melded, welded, kind of overlaid, embedded into the actual world.
0: Yeah and I think that's what is so interesting about this idea is that if we put our Star Trek hats on or our um, Black Mirror hats on, we always sort of think about this other world and this virtual world as being something wholly separate, right? You, you put on a headset and you go to this other place. And the world that you've painted um, and these augmented reality devices are starting to create is more of a blending of the two, uh, which I think is probably a little closer to the on-ramp and the, the reality of, of its use case in these early stages.
1: Yes, this is my guess. Mm -hmm. Um, There are, you know, plenty of people working on it. It's going to be one of the things that are going to be long talked about before they actually arrive. You know, I've been wrong before. I thought virtual reality, when I saw it in the 80s, the middle 80s, I thought, oh my gosh, this is here. And I was wrong. You know, it's still not really here. So my 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 prediction, my forecast for for AR is that it's going to take decades.
0: Yeah, and I think that you know sometimes the world around you will take a leap forward, or sideways, or backwards, but but a leap nonetheless in sort of the environment it creates for such use cases. So your mirror world article came out uh, about a year before the global pandemic broke out. Yeah, and a year before everybody started to everybody who could started to work from home. Uh, yeah. And you get separated physically from the whiteboards in the office and sure. your colleagues. I wonder in what ways have the past 10 months impacted or changed the way that you see Mirror World?
1: I have never had much doubt that that basically we're, we're moving in the direction of virtual connection mm. as a supplement to the real world of meeting face to face. So, so, so I believe in the sort of the additive properties of, of, um, these things that, that we generally very rarely do we throw away an option. Mm. We generally add options. And so now they will still be, um, meetings face to face. We will still sit down with people to have a meal face to face, their value of bringing some people together as a group, will never go away. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say never, but it's not going to go away for a millennial. You know, for for as long as we can see it's not going to go away. But what we have now is we have additional ways that we can collaborate and meet. I think um what's happened is is that for some people like me, I've been using video conferencing for 20 years um and res- I'm very aware of the limitations, but for a lot of people they were f- they were kind of educated. They were, they were, they were seeing that, Oh, there is something here. There is, there's the germ of something that could grow into something that, that I would use. And so that's a, that's a good lesson.
0: What could it look like? Paint us a picture. So when you have your most optimistic hat on, what would an interaction in the workplace of the future look like?
1: Well, um, I want to reiterate that, that, the ideal we're moving towards is something that has multiple vectors. It has multiple types. So my interaction, let's say you're my colleague, my interaction with you would include seeing you, depending on the project, either once a week or twice a week or right. maybe once a month. One very clever hack, which I really think is, is, is very powerful, is there may come to be uh, a standard Zoom room. We'll call it a Zoom room because whether it Zoom's around or not, but it's cool. called it a Zoom room. Yeah. It's a tiny little corner somewhere and it has in it a very standard furniture. We'll call it yeah. furniture. So there's a chair, but it's a particular chair and it's in a particular position, always the same. Yeah. And I will go sit in that chair and that chair in that little corner is exactly the same as in your room. Mm-hmm is exactly the same as one in Ireland, exactly the same as one in China. And so I can also sit there with my glasses and see you, a virtual you, sitting in that virtual chair. Because you are also sitting in that same chair in yeah, your place. Exactly. So so we could have a a corner of a of a place that is the Zoom room and we could actually have I could have view in 3D volume, you know, three, three dimensions you virtual you sitting there talking to me across from me in my chair, and we're in this replica that's exactly the same anywhere so that it really appears as if you're really sitting in that chair.
0: Yeah.
1: And that can be, that's a very simple hack, and that can be very, very powerful. And And the thing that I have seen from my own experiences in trying this is the illusion of your presence is incredibly powerful this way and I can be convinced of your presence, even though it's a cartoony, shadowy figure, it doesn't matter. All the other cues and clues about your presence are triggered in my mind. So I feel, in a kind of experiential way, I feel as if you were really present. And that's a very, very powerful characteristic to have in a conversation.
0: It changes the dynamic of everything. I mean, I think that you're right. There will be some sort of a study of, what types of interactions are best suited for what types of, I guess, environments. But, uh, you know, it certainly changes. Um, I apologize, my virtual dog is barking in the background. I don't uh, hear him. <laughs> it certainly changes the um, the dynamic of certain conversations. Now, so right. I, I wanna shift gears a little bit and talk about, so we've talked about what's possible with this, um, what could be possible with where this technology is headed. Um, but you also write a lot about, you know, using your your expertise from what has already transpired with these major technological advancements to try to understand how things will be commercialized and, and where they will be commercialized and where they don't. And so let's talk a little bit about ads, to put it plainly. Looking at how ads and the internet have grown up kind of side by side with each other, what lessons can we take from the, the commercialization of the internet to apply to the future development of mirror world.
1: Yeah. I, I think we're coming to a point in the education of the internet where we understand the value of having direct support of media and by direct support, I mean subscription primarily. Right. We don't want to lose the option of advertising. We don't want to ban them. Right. Um, but we want to have other models. And as we go into the mirror world, we want to m- make sure that we don't have a single monocrop business model. And I think we can go into mirror world a little bit wiser knowing that, okay, these are some of the options and it may take some time In maybe beginning everything is kind of ad supported. But if you really want a quality experience, you're really going to want to be able to pay for it. Yeah. And so, um, The free can always be a good place to start, but it's not really where you want to end up.
0: Yeah. And everything kind of comes at a cost, even free things. Sure. I think that's a really interesting idea that, you know, every time we make a leap forward, we're trying to learn from mistakes that we made in the past. Right. Um, And, you know, one of the other challenges that we've uncovered with even something as, as, ubiquitously used as Google is, right. you know, biases in the algorithms that inf- that bring forward right, uh, right. information for us. Is that just in your mind, you know, something that is always going to be there even as we take new leaps forward uh, and we just have to be aware of it? Or is there a way to build this new next stage without introducing those biases?
1: Biases. Oh, no, no, we're all biased. Everybody's biased. Everything is biased. Bias is inherent in everything. Mm. The thing you can do about bias is several things. One is you can identify it, recognize it, it, you know, admit to it. Secondly, you want to choose your biases, but it's impossible to take out bias. Bias is in some senses what a point of view is. It's, yeah. it's your Curation is a bias, Right. And so um, it's inherent in human life is inherent in every human look. And so what we want to do is you want to identify well, what are, what are your biases? What are the biases? And um, bias comes with the territory. The, the idea that anything is impartial, I think, is just that's like utopian. Yeah. That's that's not possible. Um, so will A.I. be biased? Absolutely, because yeah. humans are biased. And even if they weren't training on humans, the fact that that we interact with them is going to make them have a bias. And the fact that they're engineered means that there is a bias. Biases can be rooted in just the assumptions that you make about anything. So you know bias is kind of a code word that can mean lots of things, but I'm using it just in terms of, Are there tendencies? Are there assumptions? Is there a point of view? Yeah. Is there an expectation? Does a system uh, assume certain things? And the answer is always.
0: Yeah. Another hot button issue for internet that we debate a lot today is privacy. What will privacy look like in a mirror world future? Uh, And what should it look like?
1: Yeah, I, I don't really like to use the word privacy because it means about 13 different things.
0: Much like bias.
1: That's like, or even worse than bias. Yeah. I, I think it's one of those terms that over time we will become a little better at dissecting apart. part. So um, privacy can mean nobody knows anything about you. It can mean that um, certain kinds of information is not shared. It can mean a sense of, of dignity and confidence and security that you have. Yeah. About, um it, it can mean lots of different things, and none of those are necessarily uh, they, they aren't equivalent. Um, they may have some overlapping, but but they are very distinct things that have to be treated kind of differently. yeah so so when we talk about privacy and AR we're talking about lots and lots of different things. And I know where you're going because one of the aspects of this is that in order to make a mirror world, we have to Monitor or capture information about people at many, many levels that we're not that we're not doing right now, and um, that's kind of expensive to do. But once you put on these smart glasses and have the cameras that look look both ways, that look at your face and then look outwards, and they're tracking where you are, and all this information. And they're being able to capture most intimate things about you, just to be able to project your avatar in there, just to give you the view. Right. So the amount of information that, that will be, that we, that the system will be collecting is huge. Right. So the issues of what happens to it, what's the control, who has access to it, um, who manages it, who who profits from it, will it be important? Yes. And and it will. There'll be blowback. There'll be resistance to certain aspects of it. There'll be uh, incidences that will galvanize people. So there'll there'll be a a struggle. There'll be learning experiences. There'll be a journey in this as we try and figure out what to do about it. I don't think it will stop the technology from developing because the benefits are so Large, right? There may be people who decide to opt out because they don't want to deal with it. That's fine. That's good. I always support dropping out of technology, but remember that you can't steer it if you drop out. If you don't use it, you can't steer it. Hmm. You can only steer these things yeah. by using them. So that's part of the answer, by the way. what what are should our policies be? And I th- say our policies should be dictated on the evidence, evidence-based. So let's, through use,
0: yeah,
1: we we can only figure out how these things work through use. We can kind of imagine lots of things and that's good. We should do that. But that's not a good basis for making policy is what we imagine. We want to imagine, we don't have evidence-based yeah. policy. And so let's look at the evidence and how it actually works what kinds of information how do we like to share it who can look at it um, and I often advocate for symmetrical symmetry meaning that I, I, I want the information to flow both ways it's like yeah you, you know about me but what do I know about you who are watching I want some control over that um, it, it shouldn't just go one way yeah. and so I think the more symmetry we have in this the better
0: I like that way of looking at it a lot. I have one more kind of nuanced question for you, and then I've got um, a bit of a lightning round. So the nuanced question is, is similar in nature, which is much like the internet. I think when the internet first came around, it had properties that were kind of a great equalizer in terms of access and information, and it had properties that sort of exacerbated inequalities in the world. So if you didn't have access, if you didn't have fast enough speeds, uh, you were on a different playing field than perhaps your peers. Are there ways with mirror world and sort of augmented reality as we move forward where we could lean into the the positive aspects of it that level the playing field for people and give everybody the same information and and sort of safeguard against the, the things in it that may perpetuate inequities?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, In access, I think this is one case where the market does a really good job. And, and, um, you know, in the very beginning of the Internet, people were really concerned about the digital divide is what they were calling it at that time. We now have almost everybody in the world having a smartphone. That was, you know, many people, right. including Nicholas Negroponte, tried all kinds of things to, you know, bring laptops to one person and stuff. A lot of effort, and and I felt at times like you don't need to do that because this is going to happen on its own. There, there's so much money to be made getting access By to people.
0: everyone. Yep.
1: that that's the one of the things that we don't really have to worry about in a certain sense. We need to worry about the other problem, which is. What happens when everybody in the world is connected to each other all the time, all day long? And that's what we're kind of seeing, is that's the thing to kind of really worry about, where we might need to have, that's not going to be solved by the market, okay? That's where we need to have governmental intervention. And so basic access, I think, as much as possible, will be delivered. And, you know, of course, there may be areas of the world out in the rural areas where it needs some subsidy of some sort. Okay, that's fine. We'll we'll do that as as needed, but by and large, um, the benefits will be so great. There'll be so much money to be made uh, that I I I think that level, the kind of the lowest common denominator level, yeah, can be served just by the market mechanisms.
0: Oh, very helpful. Um, all right, so thank you, Kevin. That was amazing. I I know this. You think about this stuff all the time, and uh, even just getting that little bit of insight into the way that you think about it has been enormously helpful. I have a little bit of a, I guess, not so lightning fast, lightning round. you ready for it? Yes. Awesome. All right, so what scares you?
1: Cyber war. Mm. Um, The reason why cyber war is scary to me is because we don't have any rules, because we don't have any agreement about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. In traditional warfare, believe it or not, I'm all for rules in war, although it sounds absolutely crazy because I'm against war. Sure. But having rules is better. We don't have those rules for cyber. We don't have what's acceptable, and uh, because of the nature of this, it's very hard to find who's accountable. And so, I think some really bad things could happen before we wake up globally and begin to have, um, you know, global consensus. And by the way. just having national policy, having national security does not work. There's no national security without global security. I'm, I'm scared about that.
0: Oh man, I am now too. Okay. We're going to need a little palate cleanser after that. So why are you so drawn to the future?
1: Um, because really the only place that I can change.
0: Hmm. Love that. Are there technologies that we need to get rid of in order to accelerate our growth into the future?
1: That's a good question. I don't think so. So so there are technologies that are doing the wrong job right now that aren't doing the right thing. Okay. But. Um,
0: What's an example of that?
1: Uh, like, well, like DDT was one example. DDT was um, being uh, used as an insecticide at plantation level Um, on cotton and huge stuff. And it was huge environmental damages. But DDT sprayed judiciously around a household is the best deterrent for malaria that we have, saving hundreds of millions uh, of lives a year. Got it. So um, if you use it, spraying indiscriminately on huge scale is terrible. Yeah. Used around the household is actually a great technology. And nuclear power is another example.
0: I think it's so amazing how many of these come back to technology in search of the perfect use case, right? And that yeah. seems like we're getting new new use cases all the time, right. and refitting our technology or building new technology right, right. to match them. Right. All right. Um, a lot of our listeners are business leaders. I wonder if you could kind of step into their shoes for a moment and. Tell me how you think business leaders can be better futurists, how they can think in the way that you think.
1: Mm. Well, one of the tricks for looking and making forecasts in the future is to not have a single forecast, but to have scenarios, to have mm. multiple ones. And, and, the, and the, the, the reason is, is because it's very hard to make predictions, particularly about the future. The one thing you know about the future is that it has to be possible, doesn't have to be plausible, but it has to be possible. So what you want to kind of do is you want to kind of imagine the corners of possibilities. Right. You want to kind of like imagine where the boundaries of of the possible are. And then if you can kind of get the far corners of the possible and imagine what you would do if that came true, then you have rehearsed the boundaries and you won't be surprised. Yeah. So the idea is to not predict the future, but to not be surprised by it. And to take some of those surprising corners and then to rehearse what you would do so that if it began to go in that direction, you'd say, oh, I recognize this. Got it, yeah. This is what we've got to do. So you're not trying to say, well, I'm going to predict this because that's uh, almost impossible and you're going to be wrong. But try to imagine what the boundaries of the possible are knowing that whatever happens has to happen within that.
0: So the goal is not to be right. The goal is to be ready.
1: That is perfect. I've never heard that said that way, but that's exactly right. Okay. Not to be right, but to be ready.
0: Well, feel free to steal it. Um, yes. so if people wanted to stay, uh, you know, current and also read more of your work, where could they go?
1: For me in general, I have a website. So if you go to kk.org, I've got a blog detectium We've got cool tools where we review tool every day, where users review a tool. I recommend a newsletter, that I re- a weekly newsletter that I send out where um, Mark, Foreignfather, and I, and Claudia, we make six really cool recommendations every week in one page. That's awesome. Um, and so all the other kind of stuff, kk.org.
0: Awesome. Kevin, I love how many different ways there are to tap into your way of thinking and your study, both of the past and your your sense of the future so thank you so much for spending this time with us we really appreciate it it's really it's fascinating stuff and i think it i love that idea of how easy it is to be fearful and to start from a place of fear about the future but how much more powerful it can be to be optimistic so thank you so much um for coming on the show
1: it's really my pleasure thank you for inviting me
0: Today's episode was written and produced by Matthew Brown. Additional editing came from Pizza Shark Productions. Our theme music is from Tyler Litwin, and the music you're hearing right now comes from Synchronize. This is our final episode of the season, but you can listen to every episode anytime you want, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Meg H. Keeney, or you can send us a note at helloathegrossshow.com. We always love to hear from you, especially in between seasons. As always, I'm Megan Keeney Anderson, and thanks for listening.